breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. This is the place where we ask the tough questions, where your humble American Muslim patriot who always looks at defending and preserving American principles, but also doing the right thing, ask the tough questions. For long, most of our focus has been on radical Islam, Muslim reform, countering the ideas that radicalize. But these few weeks, as the rest of you, as the rest of the 93% or so of American public are under lockdown, I'm taking some of those ideas, some of those principles that guide my life. And also, since you could say in the outpatient setting, I'm also on the front line of this as a primary care doc fighting COVID-19. Like the rest of you, I have a few thoughts of my own, a few opinions. And as this goes on, as the time of lockdown continues, we're starting to ask some tougher questions. And I do think as we get deeper into this, it's going to be more and more important that we ask the tough questions, that we not just go with the herd. It's un-American to go with the herd. It's smart sometimes to do that, to make sure that the least number of lives are lost. But at what point, at what sacrifice, at what cost? And is it the right thing? You're assuming going with the herd is the right thing. As we try to build herd immunity, that herd immunity is not going to happen if we're isolated. And I'm not going to dive right into the controversies yet. Today we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the modeling. What happened with 3M? Companies supposed to be making masks. Did they deserve the criticism that they got? Spend a bit of time on the U.S. Navy captain relieved of his duty aboard and leading the USS Theodore Roosevelt, a nuclear-powered carrier, because he made his plea for his crew released to the media, not through the chain of command. As a former Navy doc who also reported to a captain aboard ship for a period of time during my duty stations, I have a little bit to say about that. Are people beginning to revolt? Will we see a revolt? What's happening globally? Syria, China. What's happening at the UN? And finally, what are our priorities? So first, let's talk about this. Navy captain. I was a Navy doc served aboard the USS El Paso from 1992 to 93 plus. Ship was decommissioned when Clinton decommissioned half the U.S. Navy. And I was the head of the medical department, had nine corpsmen working for me. We made decisions that affected troop readiness. We made decisions that the CO listened to me directly. The commanding officer listened to me directly. And if I felt that the health of a, of a sailor was imminently compromised, it would sometimes change complete operations of our ship and the ships we were attached to as we did training operations and sometimes 
military operational requirements as we did, as our ship did, off the shores of Mogadishu in Somalia. But there's a reason for a chain of command, there's a reason for a reporting structure. And we saw this week the commanding officer of the U.S. aircraft carrier, Theodore Roosevelt, was forced into port in Guam. And this was, by the way, after he let his troops go ashore in Vietnam a month or so ago. Another criticism that's come up recently with him. But again, he's not a doc. He's taken advice from physicians on board. Who knows how those decisions were made. But he released a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. Their news report this week said, Exclusive internal letter from the U.S. Navy, four pages. of the captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt plea for help for the lives of his sailors. In the letter he said, Sailors do not need to die. If we do not act now, we are failing to properly take care of our most trusted asset, our sailors. Captain Brett Crozier wrote in the letter, leaked, quote-unquote, and then confirmed, confirmed, by the San Francisco Chronicle to have come from the ship after they spoke to a couple commanders on board. His letter was interesting, full of pleas and a lot of realities, obviously. He's a Santa Rosa native. He said in the letter, this will require a political solution, but it is the right thing to do, Crozier wrote. We are not at war. Sailors do not need to die. If we do not act now, we are failing to properly take care of the most trusted asset, our sailors. He said only a small contingent of infected sailors have been off-boarded. Most of the crew remained aboard. And then he laid out how the ship is a petri dish in its conditions, unable to socially isolate, unable to separate, and this is why the world learned what it did from the deaths and other sicknesses and illness and progression of disease that was seen on the Princess Cruises. He asked for compliant quarantine rooms on shore in Guam for his entire crew as soon as possible. Removing, he said, the majority of personnel from a deployed U.S. nuclear aircraft carrier and isolating them for two weeks may seem like an extraordinary measure. This is a necessary risk. Keeping over 4,000 young men and women on board the Teddy Roosevelt is an unnecessary risk and breaks faith with those sailors entrusted to our care. The Navy's response, I heard about the letter. I know that our command organization has been aware of this for 24 hours, and we've been working actually the last seven days to move those sailors off the ship and get them into accommodations in Guam. The problem is that Guam doesn't have enough beds right now, and we're having to talk to the government there to see if we can get some hotel space, create tent-type facilities, etc. We don't disagree with the captain that we're doing it in the very methodical way because it's not the same as a cruise ship. That ship has armaments. It has aircraft. We have to be able to fight fires if there are fires on board the ship. We have to run a nuclear power plant. 
There's a lot of things that we have to do on that ship that make it a little bit different and unique. But we're managing it and we're working with it. Other retired admirals have said that you might see more of this aboard the USS Navy ships and other military ships since they're breeding grounds for coronavirus. So that sort of lays the issue. Secretary of Defense then withdrew the captain's orders aboard that ship and relocated him. And there's been an outcry, an outcry from the left and naysayers saying that he's a hero. The New York Times opined that it was inappropriate to relieve him of his duty, even though he had jumped the chain of command. Good old side with our enemies, Ilhan Omar, decried President Trump's administration for removing Captain Crozier. So here's my two cents on this. I feel more than you know the the empathy the pain that Captain Crozier had as he knew full well he was going to violate protocol, standard protocol, in notifying the world directly about what was happening aboard ship. Though I think the news story had leaked already as they were not, I, I don't even think it was Navy public relations not to tell the world that there were infections on board and they were trying to deal with them as they engaged Guam and others in a political solution. But for the captain, it wasn't fast enough. And I don't know how he measured that time. But for the captain, he wanted to remove all of them. If you look at that letter, a long four-page letter, and he got into some empathic commentary that... As even President Trump said, was probably a bit overboard. But I get it. There is no tighter unit. There is no tighter responsibility than what a CO has, where he serves not only as the military leader, also the judge for court proceedings on that ship, and also a parent for many of them. But that is a warship. While we're fighting coronavirus, we might be fighting other enemies tomorrow, next week. Troop readiness, troop readiness is always a number one priority. We can't abandon a ship that has nuclear weapons, nuclear material that can thus put others at risk because you end up causing the protective forces on board to decrease to an untenable level. These decisions all have a significant point-counterpoint risk-benefit analysis as every decision we make, and yet somehow the pandemonium, and I think this is the learning point, not not only as a Navy doc, but the pandemonium and fear of folks who I think don't even watch that much of the news, but yet apparently they do. 
drove a captain who knows protocols for decades, rose as a hero. And yes, rightly so, when he left the ship this week, he was given a hero send-off by his troops because they knew he loved him and they knew he was a patriot. And this isn't saying at all that this captain's not a patriot. But when it came to... I always remember... You know, when, when docs would complain about being sent here or there and they wanted to go elsewhere and they had their own opinion about what they should do, we were always told, first and foremost, are the needs of the Navy. Yes, if my son or daughter was on board that ship, I would want everything done. As a civilian, I would start writing my senator and doing everything possible to get them off. We've had prisoners of war. We've had others that, that so many that have suffered as a result of service and sadly some paid that ultimate price. And yet this captain somehow in his mind made a differentiation between this period in which he reports we're not at war, but the Navy trains that you're always at war. We're awarded against this virus. And what kind of message does it send to the world that, oh, you just let a virus on a ship and they will fold like a deck of cards? There has to be a way to approach best practices in that tight tin can of a ship. I get it. Who knows if the doctor was infected? Who, and there's more than one doc. The carriers have, I think, a, a, a significant medical team from a, a senior medical officer to multiple junior medical officers to 50 to however many corpsmen on board. And yes, the prevention of even one death is worth significant amounts of pressure, absolutely. But the message again, we are, our military is war ready and cannot put a pause on the manning of a ship unless it's in a shipyard being serviced. And even then, when it's being serviced, it still has protocols for protection of the equipment, the weaponry, its coordinates, and what's internal, as it could be compromised by our enemies. You see then Chinese ships as we fight this Wuhan virus, as you see, the Chinese ships have retrofitted and copied copied every element of our military ships that they can through photography and the thievery of our technology. So I get it. And the second thing is, is you read the, the editorials and the and the just inane, inane criticism from Congresswoman Omar and others who say that he was a hero and this is nonsense. It not only makes it obvious that they've never served, but they don't understand what troop cohesion is. They don't understand what mission readiness is. And they think that somehow rules that have... details 
about when they can be broken and how they should be broken would have to come from the president, from the secretary of defense, or from the joint chiefs in order for certain protocols to be broken in order to save lives. So I think the learning point for us here is that somehow a captain who knows better, somehow a media who doesn't know better but is using this for political points because President Trump and our Secretary of Defense made a call that was right. No matter what the Trump administration does, if they say if they say A, the media says B. And for a captain of a nuclear-powered carrier to release a letter and bypass protocol because they weren't acting fast enough, and to say that it was because he was simply trying to save lives, sends also a message that somehow our military leadership doesn't care about the lives as much as that captain does. And I can tell you my 11 years of service Every one of them I met does. I'm sure they were keeping in close contact about the level of illness of any of the infected 100 to 150 that are reportedly infected on board there. And that ultimately, yes, there are a number of senior officers on board there that might reach some of that over 40, over 50 age that starts to be more at risk. And the captain probably felt that he couldn't make some measured balanced decisions of one versus the other. So it either had to be the whole crew goes off or none of them. Unless they were infected and sick. But again, the message can't be to our enemies that we'll release letters to the media. Because that's the precedent. That we will release letters to the media our captains will if the pressure's too high, whether it's state of war or not. And nowadays, with asynchronous warfare, when is a state of war happening? We always have to be on the ready. We just had an attack by a terrorist on a Pensacola naval base from a Saudi training, supposedly, that decided to shoot up his colleagues that were training with him because he believed the ISIS message on a military base. Allah Nidal Hassan from 2009. So we're constantly at war. And it pains me to see the fear and pandemonium driving folks that should know better to act in ways that are just not right. Which brings me to the bigger question now about... About this conf- about this conflict against this virus and the curves and the daily briefings and and the lockdowns. Fine, we stemmed the curve. People looked at the Washington State data and said that we were going to run out of ICU beds. And now some of that data, if you follow Alex Berenson, a New York Times author, former New York Times reporter and author now, who's been previously vocal in the last few years on the marijuana crisis and the problems with addiction to marijuana now has been talking about epidemiology with this virus and said 
wait a minute, the numbers that they said in Washington, that if it was going to be, if New York was going to be like Washington State, they would run over capacity and it hasn't been turned every day. They redo them and now they're under, it looks, discharges more than admits. Whatever metric you want, it looks like the peak has slowed down already. You could say that's wishful thinking. All of this has not been done before. There's a lot of uncertainty in this entire process. And yet we talk about it as if there's certainty. That somehow the epidemiologists and the docs that are giving us our briefings, they must be right because they are the experts. And I get it. I'm a doctor. I get frustrated sometimes when patients, you know, I had a patient call me and insist that a symptom of gastroenteritis was the beginning of COVID. And I said, no, it's a respiratory virus. And I got a little frustrated, as all of us are, because we're so busy. We have so many different pushes on our time. The last thing we want to do is argue with somebody about the fact that COVID can cause gastrointestinal symptoms in its presenting form. There are reports of a number of patients as they get ill, it affects all the systems and inflammation, and they get a lot of symptoms of similar to gastroenteritis. And then the patient apologized for arguing with me, and and two days later the COVID came back negative. But the bottom line is, is that it's causing a lot of stressors, and yet we can't just sort of... And then I'm seeing more un-American activity where you see people taking pictures of people on beaches, walking together, holding hands, and shaming them. Shaming them to where you're starting to have a mass groupthink that somehow we must... Yes, we can socially distance. And if you're looking at social distancing on a scale of 0 to 100, if 100 would mean that every human on the planet in our country stays six feet apart, except for those in hospitals treating. That's 100. Let's say we're at 85 or 90% efficacy. That's fine. That's all we need. The point is slowing the peak, not shaming the entire planet. And those in our country. And is it necessary, especially when outside? The virus transmits through respiratory droplets. They fall to the earth and break when people cough. Or whatever, yeah. So if somebody's not coughing and has no symptoms, they say 50% of those infected are asymptomatic. So as you walk down the rationale of shaming people that are outside, it doesn't make any sense on so many levels. And yet that's what we're doing. All of a sudden it seems like it takes one crisis to turn us into Big Brother, into an Orwellian Experiment. Uh, I saw on Twitter one of the tweets was, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to your 60-day free trial of communism. Okay, yeah, you know, listen, I'm a doctor. I get it. My heart every day is out there making sure that every patient I see and talk to has the least risk possible for getting infected or getting progressed if they are infected with significant respiratory Syndrome related to COVID-19. 
And I want to play my part not only as a citizen, but as a healthcare provider and as a humanitarian. But we need to ask ourselves, what are the firewalls that we won't go through? What are the principles that we will believe in as a society that we will accept? Especially when we're, this is the first experience, this is the first time we've had active social media and a massive virus dissemination like this. The amount of information being spread and the way it's being spread and this type of virus with its virulence and contagion is new in this environment. The numbers later may end up saying that it ended up not causing significant more morbidity or mortality than SARS or the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. Who knows? We're going to see what those show. And if it's similar or less, they're going to say, oh, it's because of all the, all the protections we did. And that might be true. It might not be. You compare Singapore to Hong Kong, Hong Kong shut down the schools of kids K-12. through Singapore did not. They went through the curves fine. There was no perceptible difference in the risk to kids or the population from transmission from kids as a result of the difference in that thing, in that, that single behavior, let alone all the other behaviors that we're talking about. So my second question for today's podcast is, I'm sorry, I'm willing to take a higher cost and a risk as a citizen, as a doctor, as a patient. If it means keeping America the way it is versus ebbing and breaking holes into the Swiss cheese that is our constitution, that is our society, that is our national identity. I'm willing to take some risk if it means demanding a higher level of proof that the social decisions being made by politicians and especially by doctors who are smart but yet often come up with drugs and other things that end up being proven wrong. If you look at Dr. Fauci himself, I was giving him a lot of credit and praise early on in this crisis. Now I'm realizing that as everybody else should, that he's as human as everybody else, and he's just, I think, using his power inordinately to influence a change in society that is going through firewalls that we should not go through. Enough with the tanking of our economy. Let's start to figure out how to release the chains from our democracy, from our free markets, and start to get America back to work at the latest next week. Waiting to April 30th, I just don't understand at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. This virus is spreading. It spreads very quickly. You might have another peak. We watch the peaks. We get the people back to work, at least that are the least risk. And we have a period of slow resurgence of the economy. And you won't need another $2 trillion, another $4 trillion in the next month if this continues as unemployment numbers go way up. Not to mention the science is still not there. The data we're using is weak. We need to have a debate. We need to have a conversation about this that nobody's having. 
It's almost as if if you even ask about it, it means you're some kind of murderer. How about 3M? Let's talk about companies that are all about profit for a second. 3M claimed that they were going to help us and and start making more masks, etc. And it turned out that it was released that they were shipping some of them overseas because they were paying cash on the dollar. Direct cash payments. And then we started to hear about a lot of other shenanigans going on back and forth where American companies were not being given the PPE, the protective, patient protective equipment. Necessary because 3M could not get it to them because they were providing overseas orders whatever country, even China. Now China's sending some back and wants a thank you from us for that, which President Trump gave them, by the way, and said thank you. And it's going to be a while before I say thank you to China, who hid the secrets from us about what was happening in Wuhan, who killed the doctor, I believe. He had a plea as he was a whistleblower and left us all in the world six weeks behind where we should have in fighting this virus. But the three M's of the world, I think, should be shamed. No different than uh, any anybody should be shamed when they take foreign interests over our own because of the mighty dollar. And I'm a free market, liberty-minded capitalist. But there's civic obligation, there's, there's national obligation that comes with being corporate leaders, especially when you have resources that are so deeply needed. And, you know, listen, you want to use the T word, treason? Uh, I'll leave that to others to adjudicate at a later time. Did they take an oath? As citizens, they sure did. And I hope, ultimately, I think President Trump's criticism of 3M was not only appropriate, but refreshing. And I hope there's investigations later into how that decision-making was made, who approved it, and whether anything was being done about it while it happened. Because at the end of the day, our country's in a national lockdown. We are at war against the virus. And we need companies that have the ability to help us. And this is why the defense... um, I don't know if it's called the Restoration Act or Defense Protection Act, gave the president the ability to mandate that companies like Ford and GM make ventilators and masks and other things like that. And by the way, that act is invoked frequently, frequently in mandating companies with the resources do things that are not typically part of their force, market force. Back to the reporting. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about, Google. Google's releasing aggregate data of people's GPS positioning. Aggregate data of of citizens' GPS positioning to show where groups are meeting and where, especially in public places of business, where violations of the social, physical distancing policies are done. 
Wow. Do you want anything more passive-aggressive? As they say, oh, we won't violate your privacy. We won't reveal your positioning to the government. Oh, but oh, we'll do it in aggregate anonymous data. While we end up targeting the businesses that are small businesses that we want to destroy. And you may say, well, those businesses deserve it. They're not following the law. By the way, we say the law, when the governor passes edict that edicts that shut down private economy, I get it that there's a little latitude in times of emergency in order to preserve and protect who we are, individuals, whether it's to prevent anarchy after hurricanes and massive storms, whether it's to prevent whatever it might be in declarations of emergency. We do need to have a national conversation about what the constitutional limits are state-to-state and federally about what has been declared over the last few weeks and will go on. But I'm sorry, Google ratting out the positioning of our private information is basically China 101, tyranny 101. That's how it starts. And I'd rather not they graduate from this class to 201. Because that's what happens when we give a little bit of our freedom in the name of health or security. How many patients worry about their information being spread through electronic medical records of the government and elsewhere as they pay for health care and other things, but will your diagnoses be used against you? That's a valid care. Valid concern. And yet now, in a crisis, we're seeing GPS positioning systems being revealed willy-nilly by a company that said they would never do that. That bothers me. Now we see China being asked to serve on the Human Rights Commission. Health Commission also of the UN. I mean, the World Health Organization, we should significantly punish, demand the resignation of its head, and recalibrate the mechanism with which we share information influence with China and other tyrannies at the WHO. And listen, I'm active at the AMA. I understand some of the international professional collegiality and cooperation that that organization gives us. But when it's run by tyrannies, there was an interview with a World Health Organization leading doc who whenever he was asked about Taiwan, he wouldn't even mention Taiwan and he switched it back to how good the Chinese were doing. She gave him a second try. The line got disconnected. They tried a third time. And then he finished the answer, focusing on how good the Chinese were, were and then ended the interview. There is something pathologically deep connected between the Chinese tyranny, the communists of Xi and the World Health Organization. And now is the time to do something about it if ever we've understood there's a pathological subservience there. So, please, take care of your loved ones. Be safe. 
Don't let the doldrums of the isolation and the separation from society get you down. Be strong. This is a country, we are the most resilient nation. As every democracy is resilient on its own, on its own behalf, we will come together as democracies and as a world to defeat this. But remember what our priorities are. The Queen of England gave a, a beautiful, beautiful address this week, just for a few minutes, in which she recalibrated the bonds that we have with Britain, the bonds that we have as free peoples and peoples of humanity. And I will add to that and say, I want all of you, as you do your homework, as we've talked about fighting ideologies and what's the line between freedom of religion and fighting a a, a fascist theocratic mentality, what are the lines that we should not cross when we're fighting communicable diseases that are spread by contact, social contact? What is an acceptable risk? What's an acceptable amount of lack of assurance? How many models do we need to have shown with a new virus before we will accept certain death, illness, morbidity? Because right now the mentality is, as the numbers tick every day on the screens... The mentality is that seven, eight thousand is a number that is just astronomical. What's the context of that? I know for the families that lost those seven thousand souls, there is no context that suffices. I get it. I get it. I get it. That's what I devoted my life to. But there's also a context in which we are paying a price. We are paying a price that we have to ask ourselves, what are we accomplishing? What happens after the several-week moratorium on normal activity, as an editorial in the USA Today said? We will then let people out to get exposed again to the virus. It's not like the virus is going to go away. We don't have good data. Ask yourself. So the bottom line is, is ask yourself, set priorities, figure out what are the things you will sacrifice your economic sustainability to, your mental health to, your emotional health, your emotional proximity, physical proximity. All those things we need desperately to have a conversation about for those who love life and for those who want everybody to be healthy and not sick, but also don't want the cure to be worse than disease. God bless you all. Stay safe. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.